Branding for Entertainers, episode number 10. You're listening to the Branding for Entertainers podcast, where we talk about your visual, verbal, and virtual brand and why it matters. This podcast helps entertainers grow and become someone that your clients and audience remember long after your gig is over. And now, here's your host, Billy Diamond. Well, hello, hello. My name is Billy Diamond. I'm your host for the Branding for Entertainers podcast. In this particular podcast episode, uh, which, by the way, will be two parts today and tomorrow, tomorrow being Halloween, we are going to talk with Dean Carnegie. Dean is not only a performing magician, and even now, hey, during COVID, a performing magician. We talk about a little bit of his background, but we really dive into character development and how important that is. And before we get started today, I do have just a little bit of house cleaning that I do need to catch up with you on. And if you are a listener of this podcast, you'll notice that these episodes are very sporadic. My initial goal with the podcast has always been to bring you weekly content. What I've realized about the podcast is this, that we are so busy that it is really hard to get this content out there to you because it is like a show. And if you are in show business, you understand the importance of putting your best foot forward and coming up with quality material and getting it out there to the masses. So I never want to do anything haphazardly. And because of that, I have not been able to keep up. So my apologies with that. So moving forward, what we are going to do is a monthly. We will absolutely have a monthly podcast, so you can look forward to one per month. And hey, if I were able to get anything else in there, guess what? That's a bonus. So <laughs> let's move forward and welcome my guest today. Dean, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start, that path of heading towards the entertainment career? And then maybe even transition into talking a little bit about the history and how you got into that as well. It was two things. It was the Tony Curtis movie about Harry Houdini combined with uh, seeing the first Doug Henning special. Those two things kind of uh, solidified it. Right after seeing both of those, I went to the local mall and bought two books on magic. It wasn't long before Dean realized that he was hooked on the books, and before he knew it, he was back at that bookstore to make another purchase once again. Those books really were the foundation of my, my beginning. However, I didn't pick up magic super fast from books. I didn't like to read all that much back then, and here I, you know, here I went and bought three books, and I <laughs> didn't really care so much for reading. There were two bookstores in town, and I would go to each one, and I would scour the sections where I knew they'd have magic books. And from time to time, a magic book would show up. And normally, it was a new biography on Houdini, which I would snag in a minute. But occasionally, it was another kind of book. And usually, that was like part history. And then in the, the back section, it had several pages of tricks. I would get those, and I'd read cover to cover, and I'd begin, you know, learning about all these famous magicians like Harry Keller and Alexander Herman and, and guys like this. And I guess because I read so many books of that nature that it just started imprinting on my brain and I never forgot it. 
Growing up as a kid magician can also be, well, a very lonely thing. I can remember growing up and actually uh, spending a lot of time in my room, and I'm pretty sure Dean can relate. I had no, you know, buddies or anything to hang out with. Um, I used to correspond with Bill Larson, the, the editor of Genie Magazine. Yeah, that Magic Castle. Uh, and um, he would write back and, and give, you know, encouraging words on, you know, check out this book or this, that, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no other magic friends. I didn't know anything about magic shops, you know, when I started. And like Dean, I also grew up in the country, so I didn't have any magic friends either. And I certainly didn't know right away about magic shops. But man, what a find it was when we found that first magic shop. Then I found out about Al's Magic Shop in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and that was, a, that was a game changer right there. Al Cohen. Al Cohen. Yeah. And, um, I, of course, I, was, uh, I frequented the shop many, many times. You know, loved Al and Stan and Mike and, and Doc and all the guys. They were just the best. Wow. Yeah, that was a true magic shop as well. A really true brick-and-mortar magic shop. Al Cohen, Mm -hmm. wow. So at this stage, as a young magician, you've read books, you've gone to places like Al's Magic Shop, and you've hung around, and you've probably learned a lot, and then eventually you decide that you're going to take the Chavez course in magic, which you do. And from that point forward, tell us a little bit more because you start performing and like a lot of young magicians, you get your start in kind of a unique way. Well, back when I first really started performing, we lived out in the country, so there was you know nobody around. But my dad worked for Phillips Petroleum Company. He was Uh, one of the top salesmen in the company. And one of the things that he had the opportunity to do was uh, attend company Christmas parties. So unbeknownst to me, I didn't know he was the one that was behind it, but um, (laughs) he talked numerous uh, event coordinators into hiring me to perform at the Christmas parties. So my first shows, unlike other performers that were doing birthday parties and that kind of thing, my first shows were corporate events That's great. for for adults, and uh, and they were uh, I still can remember them vividly right now. They were wonderful. I had such a a great time, and um, it seemed you know like I was a natural at it. And the crazy part is, is that we were both very young. I think I was about eight. I actually saw my uh, first. Christmas magic show at one of my dad's corporate events and I thought one of these days I will do that and I I did so it was kind of cool because I'm sure like you we saw our friends go through this phase of "Eh, don't know what I want to do with my life and somehow back then even we knew that we were destined to be entertainers Did, did you find the same thing to be true for you Dean? I probably knew just reading the books I was that's what I was gonna do but after having got in front of an audience and, you know, you get that first bit of uh, applause, that probably solidified it. I decided, A, I was going to be a magician, and B, I was going to magic school. So years progress. You're growing up. You're doing more and more shows. What what ended up being your, your niche or what you really enjoyed? Uh, well, actually, just to backtrack on the story, yeah. I, getting out of school, I always wanted to do magic full time. 
and then I said something happened to change things, and that was I ended up getting a job um, that was not magic, and I stayed at that job for a number of years and hated every day of it. So I eventually got to the point where I said, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth being this miserable in life. I want to stop you there just for a second, because I think this is an important lesson. I think there's a lot of listeners out there, especially now. And I guess my thing is this, that that seems to be a resounding thing, because I can remember that myself, where it's like, oh, I'm stuck in this job. I really don't want to do this. I think we've all been kind of there. And I think there's two types of entertainers. There's, there's those that say, hey, I'm okay being the part-time or the weekend warrior guy. And then there's others that say man, I'm, I'm striving for this, but I just don't know how to get there. I have some security in my job. I don't know if I should leave. Can, can you speak to that on a personal level? Well, in, in my case, I had continued doing shows from, you know, when I graduated up until the time I was at this job. And when I say continue doing shows, we're talking maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 shows a year. That was the total I would do. Mm-hmm per year but that's what i wanted to do and yet you know i had this job and i guess in my case i should be glad they didn't pay very much money because that was the catalyst for getting out because i kept (laughs) looking at my bills going i have enough money to pay my bills and i'm i'm slaving away at this job and i'm having to work overtime to make extra money Mm -hmm. this is you know and every day i walk in it's doom and gloom you could lose your job they might be getting rid of your position it was like it was ridiculous. So finally, I, I said, that's it. I've had it. And I went on vacation because I had been there long enough. I built up quite a bit of vacation. So I took a week and I always told them if I ever take more than a week, something's up. And they would laugh at me because I never took any time off. And I took a week. And then when the week was up, I called them on Friday and I go, hey, can I get another week? They were like, yeah, sure. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. You've got the time. So uh, that week passed, and that Friday, my boss called, and he said, uh, what's up? And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? And he goes, you're not coming back, are you? Hmm. And I said, actually, no. No, I'm not. And it wasn't, I guess it wasn't until that very moment that I, you know, the decision was, yeah, I'm not coming back. Because I had the time. I could have just, you know, used up all the time and then chickened out and go back to work. But it was just that moment I was like, Nope, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to that. And he was actually very happy for me because he's like, you know, you are, um, you have a talent that doesn't belong where you are. You know, you need to be doing something else. And it worked out, you know, we were friends then we were friends afterwards, but I just wasn't built for it. And during that time off, were you actually doing shows or were you just kind of uh, just hanging back or were you contemplating it or was it just like this split second decision? Like, I'm just going to go all in. No, I um, was actually talking with a buddy of mine who was a full timer that I had met and um, formulating a plan on what to do, the, you know, to go full time. Gotcha. And, um, and the funny thing was, is so many people that knew me already thought I was full time. And uh, so it's like, okay, but I'm not, but you know, what do I need to do? And, uh, you know, cause here I am doing, you know, 20 shows a year. And I remember once I did go full time when all the pressure was on, I did uh, 20 shows in the first month. Wow. What a change. And I learned more that month than all the previous years because of doing the same show over and over and over again. Wow. I imagine that had to be just a rush for you. You could step out and 
totally fail. But it, you succeeded at it. And I imagine that was a lot of work to, to get to those 20 shows. But was there something that progressed as you built your business that helped lay that foundation? I mean, to go from 20 shows a year to 20 shows a month is a pretty big, that's a pretty big move. Was that out of necessity? I mean, obviously, it was kind of out of necessity because you're like, I'm taking the leap. Yeah, <laughs> it was a little bit of both. I remember this one story about this army and they were about to go to battle and they, they took their ships and they went over to this island to fight the enemy. And when they got there, the commander said, now burn all the ships because either we succeed or we die. And I was like, okay, that's that's where I'm at because I can't go back to that job. So it's either sink or swim at this point. And I put everything I had into it. And fortunately, I had, uh, you know, a couple of friends that were full timers that would give me advice from time to time. So that was, uh, you know, fortunate. It's always a good idea if you're going to make that step to have uh, that resource available. But I'll also say this, it may look glamorous. It may be, you know, in the back of your head, oh, I wish I could do that. But it isn't for everybody. Right. Sure. So for you, it worked out good. You obviously got enough full-time work off of that to, you know, going to 20 shows a month. But here again, that's great. Did it continue that way or? Yeah, it, it continued to grow. I mean, there were, there were well, the occasional lean year, but uh, for the most part, it grew. I mean, some of it had to do with other associations like meeting Denny Haney from Denny's mm -hmm. Magic Shop. So I go to Denny's Magic Shop and I meet Denny and I'm like, wow yeah. he knows more about magic than anybody he's the real deal it really it was yeah. true and uh, so i i really changed my thinking back then because i knew a lot about magic and um and i decided at that point you know what it doesn't matter how much i know about magic i'm going to take a new position i'm going to forever be the student of mm -hmm. magic uh, and that'll give me the position where i'm always able to learn something because I, I'd met so many magicians that they, you know, you couldn't tell them anything because they all, they, they already knew it all. I think the same applies for business too, especially in yeah, this day and age, sure. right? Where it's like, you know, you just constantly have to learn and yes. shift, learn and shift. I think it's, you know, I think it's the same for magic too. It's like, hey, you know, what worked in the 19th century, well, we look at that now and say, well, that, mm -hmm. that's easy. You constantly have to be on that edge of what's mm -hmm. next and how do we get there? Well, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Dean Carnegie so far. Maybe you need a little bit of extra help with your brand. Now, I don't care if you're an amateur or a pro, we all need to forward think our branding all the time. We offer you a wide range of help. Some of it's even free because my goal is to get you moving in the right direction. And I care not just about building brands, but I really care about helping you. And I do want to watch you succeed. And that's another reason, even for this podcast, is to get you moving in the right direction. Maybe you need some extra help. If you head over to brandingentertainers.com, you will see a link that says, Get Help With Your Brand. If you click that link, it's going to take you to some free resources that you'll be able to download some articles. You'll also find some things over there that we can do for you, whether that's graphic design all sorts of things. So the gamut is wide as far as the resources that we can offer you as an entertainer. 
and maybe you don't even know what you need, and that's okay too. So maybe you want to set up a free consultation with us. You can do that right there as well. So head on over to brandingentertainers.com, click the Get Help With Your Brand button, and I will be more than happy to help you build your brand. And now, let's get on with our show. Let me ask you, how did, how did Dean Carnegie come about? I got to ask that. I got to ask how, how you kind of built the brand or how you built your character. I think those are important lessons, especially for a branding for entertainers podcast. <laughs> so expand on that for us a little bit and tell us about how you built your brand and what made you uniquely different than just another magician that's out there. Well, actually, it does start with the name because Carnegie is not my real last name. Um, I had a, another last name that would often be mispronounced or misspelled, and, um, and that's annoying to say sure. the least. Yep. And one day I was I was sitting down. Uh, I was actually at the Underground Magic Theater, sitting there at the table there in the little uh, break area we had, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to write a bunch of famous people's names, just the last names, and see if any of them jump out at because I wanted a new name. So I'm, I'm writing these names down and, you know, and some of them are like, I'm like, no, nah, I could never use that. Who would, who would use Da Vinci? <laughs> David Da Vinci. That's who Yo, would use Da Vinci. Okay, all right. Sorry, David. <laughs> Dave but, Womack. He, yes. he, might, he might be listening. David yeah, Da Vinci. And, uh, and more, and more power to him. Give him all the kudos. I didn't have the guts to use that name. Um, but uh, going down, the only one that jumped out was Carnegie. And I was like, okay, let me think about this for a second. There's, well, you've got Carnegie, the, uh, you have two of them. You know, you've got Carnegie, the, the steel magnet, who was mm-hmm. a bazillionaire. And then you've got Dale Carnegie, the motivational speaker. And I'm like, wow, you can't go wrong either direction there. So, you know, when people hear the name, they're going to automatically think they'll either think corporate or they'll, they'll think wealth or something. So sure. that's what I wanted to build the brand on was, was those two things. So that was the, uh, that was the starting point of it. And I was able to increase what I charged for shows considerably because of the unique name. So here again, it was about perception, right? Because when they think of that name, they think of wealth. They think of, is that, is that kind of the direction you were heading for that? That's exactly what I had in mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. And I would think that when I think of that name and I think of wealth, I think of this, I wouldn't necessarily think Victorian, but I would certainly think your clothing and your character is built upon that feature of rich, of a richness of some sort. Is that accurate? That wrong the whole Victorian thing happened later when the steampunk revolution came around and nobody was doing anything with steampunk at that time. And I thought, okay, well maybe I could do something. And then I started working on it. And then I found out about these two guys in Las Vegas that were doing an entire steampunk illusion show. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm not going to be the second, you know, uh, steampunker. Well, they only lasted a couple months and they were gone. And um, I got to thinking about it and I'm like, okay, well, you know what? Let me um, let me rethink this whole steampunk thing. And what I found out, I started taking props and steampunking them. And what happened was, this was fascinating and eye-opening. All these old apparatus props that we all know, 
and we turn up our nose up to all of a sudden became brand new pieces because of the way they looked and audiences couldn't wait to see them. Wow. And I was like, you're kidding me. The stuff that we can't stand as magicians, all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, we want to see more of that, more of that. So then I started steampunking the actual illusions. It is the same thing. It added this interest to the prop that wasn't there before. Now, the mistake that some magicians have made is they steampunk their props, but nothing else is steampunk. Um, I went the whole nine yards. I became Carnegie Eve, the steampunk illusion, you know, and I played off a little bit of a time travel thing, which, again, time travel allows me to toy with history, which is my thing. Sure. So it, it, it all, you know, it all works together really, really well. I want to go back to something you said. You saw guys in Vegas and you thought, nah, well, I'm just going to pull the plug. And I always try to encourage people in that process of thinking with their branding, just because somebody else is doing that. I think a biggest fear we do have as entertainers is we try to pull back and be like exactly what you thought. And you thought, well, I just won't do it then. But you have to think beyond that. And that is, is what still makes you uniquely you as the person, as the performer. And I think when you can, you can pull in these different elements, it, it does make you different. Mm-hmm. That'd be like saying, hey, this guy wears a tux in magic and this guy wears a tux. You know, not that guys yeah. wear tux as much anymore, but it, it's kind of silly thinking. But I think it's, and I don't mean that towards you. I just mean in general. Oh, no, you're, you're right on the money. We tend to I, think like that. Like, oh, well, that guy's yeah. doing it, so I can't. Here again, we are magicians, so we're creators. And I think it's so important that we think out of the box a little bit more. What is it aside from that that makes me, me? What I love about your story, when you said about the steampunk, you like that, and it kind of falls in with what you believe. I think there's entertainers out there that just kind of grasp at straws. But I think it's important to step back and think about, like, I like this, and that this is me. I could, I could see me doing this. Obviously, it's kind of like dressing the performer and character development. You know, that's a whole other subject, but you've worked through some of that process. So that's really cool. Oh, yeah. You stuck it out, and you stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you said is is accurate. I wish I had not ever stopped working on it. Well, I can speak to that for a second. I think one of the important things is you you don't live in regret. And you could sit there and say, yeah, I wish I would have. And the cool part is, is that you recognize that you can get back on track. And I think that's really cool that you did recognize that, that just because somebody else is doing it, you went back to the genre, uh, the character that you love the most. So that's that's really neat to me. Let me ask you this, and I'm going to put you on the spot because I think it's a big one, and I think it's one that a lot of entertainers really don't think through because they're just like everybody else. So what makes you different? What really makes you stand out to be different? And I'm not just talking about magic. I'm talking about entertainers in general. What makes you uniquely different? The one thing that probably different about me than, and I, I don't want to put every magician in that, but let's face it, magicians are known to copy each other. Absolutely, I have no problem in saying that. Usually, whatever the whatever the biggest phase is lately is what everybody else is going to do, and of course, that certainly doesn't make you any different. Yeah, and I have always been the opposite. If I see it going somewhere, I'm going the other direction. So that's why I stepped back from it. But then I looked and I'm like, well, no one's doing this. These guys did it and they went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I guess I'm going to pick it back up. And there are other 
steampunk magicians out there, no question. Um, some of them are great. There's a, a couple from Canada that are just fantastic, but I'm not going to stop doing it at this point. It's one of the shows I really like doing. But you decorate these things up in a steampunk uh, look and you give them some sort of context that makes sense to people. And all of a sudden you've got something on your hands that nobody's got. Right. So that's the direction I took. Here's the cool part, even from a marketing standpoint, as far as I'm concerned, I would think even if that's not a thing of today in 2020, there's still that market there that loves that. It'd be like me saying, hey, I was a child of the 80s, so absolutely, I want to go see something from the 80s. So I think from a marketing standpoint, those markets are there. May they be a little limited? Well, maybe, but maybe not necessarily. And you could be the guy of that market, regardless of what that looks like. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be the big fish in the little pool than vice versa. And because I know I'd be working. You know, we looked at it like that. And we also looked at it from, uh, do we take the steampunk thing too far and then pigeonhole ourselves? So how do we find a happy medium where we're using the genre uh, to move forward, but not, you know, holding ourselves back. So there was a balancing act there, but we found it. That really had to take a lot of stepping back and thinking on that is the character, that is the look. And it wasn't just like, well, we're just going to do this and see if it sticks. Yeah. It, you yeah. really had to put a lot of thought into that. And, and it sounds like you got a good balance on it, which is yeah. just fantastic. Anything in closing that you want to say or tell us? Yeah, talking about branding, um, this isn't branding as much as it could be. Um, Years ago, I was driving home, and on the radio, they got to talking about a baseball card collection. And they were going to have the owner of the baseball card collection on an interview. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds interesting. And it wasn't even a sports channel I was listening to. The guy came on. They said, this is Canadian illusionist Alain Triquette who has one of the biggest baseball card collections in the world. Oh, wow. They interviewed him for a few minutes, and I went, okay, that's going in my book right there as far as great marketing ideas, which is if you have a hobby, you can use that hobby to promote yourself, or you take your hobby, infuse it, and use that to become original. Great advice. And that absolutely goes hand-in-hand with branding for sure. Because here again, it has to be the true essence of who you are. We, we always hear that a performer is usually just a supersized you of your personality, mm-hmm. right? Or I, I think it's really important to exactly do what you're yeah. saying. Ta- whether that's the hobbies, whether it's this or that of your own personality and what you what you like. Because then all of a sudden... You're not working so hard to create your performance or you're not working so hard to create your character, whether that's visually uh, or verbally. It's just kind of just a bigger extension of who you are as a person. Exactly. And you're not working as yeah. hard. And your material, <laughs> your, your routines, your marketing, all that will begin to write itself. It does, doesn't when it? You're, when you're yes. familiar with all that. But when you're trying to make it up out of thin air or trying to copy somebody else, it, yes. it, you know, it's just way too hard. But if again, if you use what is familiar to you, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait, this is a lot easier than I was expecting. Yeah, because you're familiar with it. That's really good advice for anybody who's listening as they develop their character. And I don't care if that's a comedian, a ventriloquist, uh, 
any sort of variety artist of just taking that of what you love, finding it out, and just sitting back and writing material based on that. And I, I think it is a process. I know for me, I've used this analogy a lot for the first 20 years of my career. I wanted to be David Copperfield and realized I wasn't him. But when I started to figure out who I was as a person, I still wasn't developed as a performer mm -hmm. or as my character. And I think it only comes with performing. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, you do tend to emulate people that you look up to when you start. We all want to be you know, whoever the hottest magician of the time is, you know, we all tend to move in that direction. But over time, you do find out more about yourself. And speaking about knowing more about yourself during this crazy time, I mean, what do you what do you think is next for you? Uh, not so much now as far as what's going on, but on a level of the show. I've already got the next phase of Carnegie already lined up. Good. The for other you. thing I do is I'm a painter. I've got it a ton of the uh, artwork that I created and I've always wanted to take the artwork and put the magic into it. So that'll be, that will be the next phase. And I've seen some of your artwork. It's really amazing. And I also think it's really cool that you recognize that you have a talent outside of being just an entertainer, but as a human being and how you can incorporate that into the next phase of your career. Dean, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. I know my listeners will glean a lot from all this great practical advice that you gave today, but I also want them to stay tuned because tomorrow you and I are doing another interview and it will be back on this podcast and you'll be talking a little bit about the history of uh, pandemics. So stay tuned for that, guys. And again, Dean, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Billy. If you like the history of magicians and the history of magic, you are going to love the Magic Detective podcast. In the two years that I've already done the podcast, I've covered topics like Harry Keller, Doug Henning, Bautier de Culta, Jermaine the Wizard, T. Nelson Downs, and more. Season three is right around the corner, and I'll start with some spookier content. I've got new segments in store for season three and many surprises. To hear the podcast, go online to magicdetectivepodcast.com, or you can look up Magic Detective on your podcasting device. My show is run on all the major podcast providers. I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and I look forward to having you as a new listener during Season 3.